Please open with me to Isaiah 50. The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He's David's root and the Lamb who died. But in four passages in Isaiah, he's referred to as the servant. The servant of Yahweh. And so these passages are called the servant songs. And we've come to the third of four. The third servant song. The servant describes himself as such, but then Yahweh describes him. And we see not just a servant, but we see a suffering servant in these passages. And here in Isaiah 50, the servant of God is surrounded by enemies. He has angry eyes bearing down upon him. They are seeking to bring him shame, humiliation, and even pain. And yet, the servant manages somehow to keep his head held high. Imagine that scenario. Angry eyes bearing down all around you, seeking to tear you down, and yet the servant keeps his head held high. And he lifts his eyes not with a self-inflated pride or shamelessness, but with resolve. Absolute, immovable resolve. The true servant of God, our Savior, withstands this gauntlet of shame and pain and stands with eyes straight ahead, an immovable gaze of determination. These are the eyes of faith, hope, and love. These are the eyes of our Savior, Jesus. And what we see about him is that he shows himself to, in this passage to be teachable, courageous, and unashamed. Teachable, courageous, and unashamed. So let me pray for us and then we'll launch into this passage. Heavenly Father, as we consider today your servant's teachability, we confess we're often very stubborn and unteachable. We look at his courage and we find ourselves often discouraged. He stands unashamed, Lord, but we often experience so much shame we don't even recognize it anymore, not to mention bring it to you or to one another. So today I do ask that you help us fix our eyes on you and set our faces towards Mount Zion the way that you have set your face towards us. Be with me today for your name's sake, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight and yours alone, my rock and my redeemer. We're going to read Isaiah 50, verse 4 through 10. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. This ends this reading 
of God's Word. This morning, we're going to hone in on verse 7, as it serves as a focal point for this text, from which the truth and the beauty of the gospel radiates out through the passage. So look again at verse 7. It says this, the second part of verse 7, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. After our time together in the Word today, I just want you to know one thing, just one thing. Because the servant of God has set his face on you, you can turn and set your face on him and one another with teachable, unashamed courage. Let me say that again. Because the servant of God has turned his face, set his face on you, you can set your face on him and on one another with teachable, unashamed courage. That's it. That's what we see today in this passage. So first, let's consider how the servant of God does turn towards you. He turns towards you. The language here is vivid. He says he has set his face like a flint, right? And the expression of setting one's face has to do with a determined direction, right? So if I want to make a strong tackle, I need to square my shoulders. If I want to go somewhere in my car, I have to turn the steering wheel where I'm choosing to go. Hoist the mainstay, swab the poop deck, onward towards the North Star kind of stuff. That's what we're talking about here. He has set his face. But what are we talking about when we say flint? The limestone in the areas around Palestine had um, accumulations of pure silica, which is what they referred to as flint, and it was one of the hardest substances that they had access to. In fact, Scripture refers to using the chipped edges of flint um, as a surgical cutting tool. In particular, in Exodus 4 and Joshua 5, it refers to it specifically as the means by which the sign of circumcision was administered. The hardest, one of the hardest things they could get their hands on and used as a surgical tool. So hold that thought for a moment, and then consider Luke 9, our New Testament reading that Brian just read. You remember what, Jesus, what Luke said about Jesus? That section of Luke's gospel from chapters 9 to 19 is called the Road to Jerusalem. It's an extensive travel narrative unique to Luke, and it takes up a third of the book. Why? Well, it shows us. It begins with Luke describing Jesus as setting his face towards Jerusalem. The Greek word there for set is harden. Harden. Do you hear the allusion back to Isaiah chapter 50? I have set my face like a flint. And then Jesus says, I have hardened my face towards Jerusalem. Zoom out again for a moment and consider this. In Genesis 31, Jacob sets his face towards Gilead. In 2 Kings 12, the king of Syria sets his face towards Jerusalem, but to destroy it. In Ezekiel 21, Yahweh commands the Son of Man to set his face towards Jerusalem, to weep over it, to judge it. And guys, Jesus does both. When he's setting his face towards Jerusalem, it is to judge those who have turned away from him and to save those who have turned towards him. Do you see that? This march towards Jerusalem, this single-minded march towards the cross is an act of both blessing and of cursing. And when he sets his face towards Jerusalem... It's a resolve. So flint then, as a surgical tool, was a means of marking and distinguishing those who, those who belong to Yahweh 
from those who did not belong to Yahweh. Jesus' face like flint towards Jerusalem meant that what did not belong in Jerusalem would be removed. And those with whom the Lord is pleased would receive good news of great joy for all the people. Like a double-edged sword, like a flint, he's going to divide things when he gets to Jerusalem. And Jesus' resolve to walk straight towards the cross is all the more remarkable when we consider what he endured to get there. Our tendency is to focus on the birth, death, and resurrection of our Savior, and rightly so for many reasons. I mean, what does Paul say? I came to preach Christ and him crucified. But it's his life, his active obedience is what we call it in theology. His active obedience is where he set his jaw and walked and talked in a manner worthy of the calling to which he had been called. And it's by means of his perfect life, his active obedience, that he can bless us with his righteousness, that he can give us that gift. It's what he endured that becomes the amazing blessing that we receive by faith in him. Friends, if you don't hear me say anything else today but this, I want it to be this. When Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, he was setting his face on you. When Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, he was setting his face, he was turning his face right to you. Let's keep reading in verse 7 and we'll see the cost of Jesus' determination and resolve. This resolve cost him something great. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He says he'll not be put to shame. In ancient Near East culture, to submit to this type of humiliation, the pulling out of the beard, the spitting, that would have been to admit that you had done something wrong if you were to submit to that kind of abuse. But here, the servant, with defiant confidence, does not put his head down. Since his sufferings are due to his obedience, not any disobedience, he can be confident in God's help. Important here is the Hebrew conception of shame, okay? We need, to, we need to take a look at how it would have been viewed back then. It had to do with being exposed as having been a fool or acted like a fool publicly. That's what he, uh, the Hebrew uh, culture would have considered a shameful event. And it appears to others that Jesus' choice to set his face towards Jerusalem was a foolish decision, opening him up to shame, right? But Jesus knew what the outcome, that the outcome would vindicate his choice. The outcome would vindicate his choice. Remember from Hebrews chapter 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, what next? Despising the shame. The shame was there, but he chose to hate it and endure it. All for us. We were the joy set before him. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In our world today, um, it really could be said that the this American South has kind of moved away from being an honor-shame culture. Right? Perhaps even similar to Southern Asia an honor-shame culture, but we've forgotten one half of that dynamic. Now, we sure do know how to shame one another, don't we? You do something wrong in the public eye, and man, all the voices, all of the things are going to be coming your way. We still do it in our, 
our interpersonal relationships too. We shame one another, but we've forgotten how to show honor. That's the antidote to shame. So we're only left with one thing. We've got the shame. We don't have the honor anymore. There's no more antidote. So what do we do with shame? The tendency is just, let's just get rid of it entirely. And then we move towards shamelessness, where we refuse to feel any shame. But Scripture leaves room for a certain type of proper, appropriate shame. This is the type of shame that recognizes that I have acted sinfully or foolishly and can admit that so that I can turn away from it and back to God and back to one another. Do you, do you see the difference? There's a shame that can cause us to hide and to lie and to turn away, and there's a shame that causes us to say, I was wrong. Shame can be the first step to repentance, or shame can be the first step to death. Relational death and spiritual death. Hear what we hear in uh, Psalm 83. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Do you see how that shame is moving people towards repentance? And like I said, what is deadly is the other type of shame. It's the insidious shame that happens in the garden with Adam and Eve. This type causes us to turn away from God, to hide, to lie, and consequently turn away from one another. Then, isolated, left to our sin alone, the shame is simply the first step on a long journey towards death. Like I said, relational death and spiritual death. And so the cure for shame is not shamelessness. Let's refuse to feel bad about anything we've done. That's not the answer. It's tempting, but it's not the answer. The cure for shame is forgiveness, grace, and the welcoming eyes of a God who asks, where are you? Do you remember that that's what God asked of Adam and Eve when they were hiding from him in the garden? Where are you? The forgiveness and grace we have in a God who says, where are you, and comes looking for us. And most importantly, who covers our guilt and shame with a perfect sacrifice. That's the antidote to shame. And that's how the servant can walk forward without shame. We moved into our house in 2014, and I had heard that there was a neighbor who was a bit of a hermit. Um, and I was intrigued, right? I wanted to help. I knew he was older. I thought, yeah, I mean, I live right across the street. It could, could be helpful. But I never saw him. When he took the garbage out, he wouldn't lift up his eyes. But one day, I saw someone in his driveway talking to him, and I decided to walk over. And y'all know me. I mean, to a fault, sometimes I can be, like, pathologically friendly, like... You don't know that person, like you don't have to go talk to them. But I did. I just walked right across and tried to talk to this guy, and he has his arms crossed like this, and I'm not exaggerating. And I say, Hey, I'm Zach, I'm your new neighbor. It's so great to finally meet you. And without uncrossing his arms, he looks at me word for word and says, I don't like you, go away. <laughs> and turns and looks back at the person he was talking to. Now, I can feel really awkward in front of all of you right now, and I do, right? But it takes a lot for me to feel that awkward in like a small group interpersonal situation. It takes a whole lot. I wanted to crawl in a hole and die <laughs> when he said that to me. I looked like frantically at the lady he was talking to, and she just says, I'm just here to visit. Like, she didn't help me out at all. <laughs> and I had no choice but just kind of like put my head down and walk back right across the street back to my house. The shame was overwhelming, right? I was so embarrassed. 
But y'all, this is what we do to one another. He had, he had options in that moment. I came and said, hey, I'm, I'm your new neighbor. I'd like to be your friend. He could have turned towards me and said, hey, nice to meet you. And then he didn't have to say much more than that, right? He could have ignored me entirely and just kind of continued talking. Or he could have turned against me, which is what he chose to do. Aggressively, I don't like you, go away. This is what we do to one another. And y'all, this is what happens in our sin with God. We turn away from Him. Aggressively. We turn away from Him. That's what sin does to us. Sin turns us in on ourselves and kills us and kills our relationships. And I don't know the pain that this man had gone through, why he had turned in on himself, and it breaks my heart, and I'm not here to make fun or to judge. It breaks my heart that he couldn't open up to these relationships. But there's a lesson to be learned here, and that we all do this to one degree or another. No matter how pathologically friendly you might be or introverted you might be. This is a human problem, a human problem. But the servant of God is different. The servant of God is different. Look with me at verse 4, and we'll walk verse by verse um, to see how the servant of Yahweh sets his face towards us with teachable, unashamed courage. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Here we see that to hear or to listen assumes obedience. This is different than how we kind of use this language. To hear or listen to someone in Hebrew expression is to obey. There's not really room for, well, I heard you, but I chose to do something different. If you don't do, then you never truly heard in the first place. The servant's obedience was learned through what he suffered. Think about Hebrews 5, 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And his obedience took the shape of proclaiming the will and the word of his father. Even the servant, even our Savior, was one who was taught. Did y'all catch that in verse 4? I, had the, I was like one who had taught. I took on the voice of one who is taught. I did the will of my Father. And so one of the most striking character qualities of the servant of God is teachability. Teachability. When you bumped Jesus, Scripture spilled out. Remember, when he was lost in Jerusalem, his parents found him where? In the synagogue, asking questions, learning from the high priests. He tells us that if we don't believe Moses and the prophets, we won't believe someone who will rise again from the dead which is pretty telling. And if Jesus submitted his life to Scripture, how could we place ourselves in the judgment seat over it or somehow think that we will become disciples by any other means? Jesus' model for... Just a few more minutes. I'm not quite done. (laughs) But you're doing great. You're doing great. I want to be done too, let's be honest. Sorry, y'all. I just had to. I just had to. If Jesus submitted his life to Scripture, how can we place ourselves in the judgment seat over it, somehow think we can decide what is good or right about the Bible and what is not? How can we think that we become disciples by any other means than being teachable with the Word of the Father? Jesus' model for discipleship is something like this. 
There is something God must teach, and I must sit at his feet and listen. That's why he commends Mary for her work in the house and says, Martha, hey, you can learn something from your sister. The servant here says he was given the tongue of one who is taught. But you notice why? Why was he given the tongue of one who is taught? To sustain weary people. It's to help those who are hurting. It's to help those who are tired. To help those who are tempted to give up. That's what all this learning, all this discipleship was meant to be and for. And so, friends, it's good news for us that Christ did not come with originality or creativity. Yes, through the servant of God, and we we saw it in the other servant songs, God was doing something new. But listen to what Jesus says in John 8. I do nothing on my own authority, but speak as the Father taught me. Did you hear that? I'm not doing my own thing. I'm simply doing what the Father has taught me. Jesus adopted the posture of a student. Jesus was a disciple before he made disciples. And friends, where we are forgetful and rebellious and stubborn and unteachable, the servant of God is so teachable. We've seen his teachability. Now look with me at verse 6, and we'll see that the servant of God is courageous. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The servant willingly gives up his back, his beard, and his face. He does not shrink back. His default posture is not self-preservation, like mine so often is. The servant turned his face toward shame and spit. And we won't know until the final servant song the purpose of all this humiliation and abuse. For now we wonder at how he could have the courage and the resolve to do all of this for our sake. Don't jump to the resolve. Don't jump to what we know would be accomplished by the cost. Sit with it the way the author wrote it. Why would he endure this type of shame and pain for us? Let the pain he took for us and for our good sink into your heart. Let the song be sung without resolving it to a major chord. Listen to it played with dissonance. This is how the composer intended it to be heard. So, he's teachable, he's courageous, and he's unashamed. He is unashamed. Verses 7 through 9. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. He knows he possesses something more precious than comfort something more sturdy than security, more calming than even peace. He has the help of the Lord. He has the help of the Lord. He will be vindicated. He can welcome adversity without shame because he knows he has the smile of his Father in heaven. Do you see this? Because he has the smile of his Father in heaven, come what may. Come what may. This is the ultimate blessing of God turning towards us and of Jesus the servant turning towards us as well. 
Again, remember our call to worship from Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn us? The argument of Isaiah 50 is echoed by Paul in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who belong to the servant of Yahweh, proved in history to be none other than Jesus Christ. At the end of the service, I'll pronounce a benediction. And that's simply a good word, a blessing. One of the most common benedictions comes from number six, and it's my favorite. You'll hear me pronounce it often, where we read this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Have you ever stopped to think about that phrase, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you? It's not really language we use very often. The simplest way to translate the Hebrew there is the Lord lifts up his face towards you. And I'll, in fact, say it like that sometimes. Somebody came up afterwards and I didn't say countenance. And they're like, why didn't you say countenance? For this very reason. I want to emphasize the fact that the Lord's face is shining on us and it is lifted towards us. That is significant. Remember, the servant's face is set like a flint towards Jerusalem, towards you. He lifts his face towards you. In this blessing, the putting of the name of God on the people by the priests, God's blessing, protection, and provision are all wrapped up in how we encounter God's face. Do you see it? It's shining on us, bringing us grace, and it's turned towards us, bringing us peace. It's turned towards us, bringing us peace. When I first started um, teaching and preaching, I had someone tell me that I couldn't preach without quoting Toy Story 3. And they didn't mean it as a compliment. And I have to take ownership for that, right? There was a lot of Pixar in the early days. And I think I've shifted a little bit, and now I don't think I can preach without talking about my dad. So I'm just asking for y'all to bear with me, okay? So here, here it comes again. After my dad died a few years ago and we were going through old pictures, something really struck me about many of the pictures. When we were young, one, two, three... Um, The pictures I have with my dad, I am on the floor, and he is on the floor with me. The same is true of my siblings. And then I looked at some of the pictures we have later, and it's often it'll be me and my siblings and my mom, and we're looking at the camera, but I'll give you one guess where my dad's eyes were. He was looking at us. He was looking at us. Not to get into the weeds here, but studies in human development have shown that even as the smallest of children, we need the eyes of someone who loves us. We need someone who smiles when we smile, who weeps when we weep. It's not a luxury. It's not an added benefit of life. If we do not have someone who is tuned into us, humans cannot even develop properly. In relationships, if people are not turning towards one another, it eventually kills the entire relationship, kind of like it did with my neighbor. 
And from Aaron's blessing, we see that it's because we're designed this way. We're not just designed to receive this from our parents or from one another or from a spouse or from a boyfriend or from a girlfriend. That reflects a deeper, eternal need. Friends, we need the face of God. We need the face of God turned towards us. And if we do not receive it, it leads to spiritual death. In the same ways that we do not receive the face of those we love, it leads to relational death. But friends, I'm not here to bring you the bad news. But we have to look at it before we'll even understand the good news. One modern hymn puts it this way, The creature knew his maker, but in pride he turned away. He traded all his riches for a debt he could not pay. He clothed himself in suffering in deep and fearful shame. Then the two greatest words in all of Scripture, But God refused to turn away. So driven by his love, Our Lord is now Emmanuel, a child of flesh and blood. Did y'all hear that? In light of all of the shame, God refused to turn his eyes away from us. We still have his eyes on us because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. The servant of God turns towards you and he turned towards you at the great cost of his father turning away from him while he was on the cross. And so by turning towards Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus was winning for you the smiling eyes of God the Father. So what's a person to do? One commentator summarizes the message of Isaiah 50 this way. The fate each person will meet is the outcome of his attitude towards this servant. The fate that each person will meet is dependent on their attitude towards the servant. It wasn't in our text that we read, but jump down to verse 11. It's just past our last one. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your own fire, by the torches that you have kindled. You shall have this from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. It's a scary verse. What's it saying? You can go ahead and walk by your own light. Okay, I'm just telling you, it's not going to lead down the path that you need. Walk by my light. Walk by the light of my face. Don't try and light torches for yourself. How do you encounter the face of God? How do you encounter the face of God? There may be no more important question to ask of our souls. But I would be unkind to suggest to you that the experience of turning to Jesus, of turning to the face of God the Father, is simple or even all the time enjoyable. Because repentance, like the pruning of a fruit tree, is necessary for growth, but it comes as great cost, at a great cost, and with great loss. Great cost and great loss. From Luke 22, after Peter denied Jesus, Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And y'all may have missed this in Luke 22. And the Lord turned. And what did he do? He looked at Peter. That look. The eyes of one who loved Peter, even in his most dark moment of shame and betrayal, pierced his soul. And we read later that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Friends, turning to Jesus in repentance is willingly choosing to grieve our sin and give it up.
And those same eyes, remember, they found Peter on the shoreline. You remember what happened when they met on the shoreline? He doesn't deny him three times. He says, do you love me? And he says, feed my sheep three times. It's a great reversal. Those same eyes assured him of his love for him and trusted him with the privilege of loving those for whom Jesus had died. Peter's life and death as a disciple was fueled by the teachable, unashamed courage that comes from having the smiling eyes of God. And so your life, your faith, your relationships, and your repentance are fueled by that same look. The eyes of God. So we've seen that the servant turns towards us, and we've been called to turn towards him. But I want us to take one step further. And it's the same step that Jesus takes when he tells Peter to feed the sheep. Redeemer, I want you to turn towards one another. Not right now. We're not going to do like turn to your neighbor and say something. If we have the face of Jesus turned towards us, then we have the smiling eyes we are longing for, and we won't be busy searching for it in the eyes of our customers, in the eyes of some digital crowd, or in the eyes of a room full of people. And y'all, I have to confess, I've looked for it in your eyes before. That's not where I'm supposed to be receiving it. I have the eyes of God the Father. So I want to commend you to do the same. Know where this look is coming from. Know who has their their face set on you no matter what. If we have the peace that comes from God lifting His face to us, we will not be so desperate for the constant approval of even our friends, our spouses, or our children. That's freedom, isn't it? One author puts it this way, there's something deeply basic in humans that runs downhill. We find it easier to spend money than make money. It's easier to gain weight than to lose it. It's more natural to be selfish and unkind than wise and loving. The tragedy of humanity is that we typically resist the very thing that will give us life. People who long for love will often destroy it at every turn. People who seek revenge live lives of obsessive bitterness. And those who want forgiveness will often run from it when it is offered. Y'all, do you see the ravages of sin? But do you see the face of God? I would add to this, it's easier to turn away from relationship than it is to turn towards it. Because turning to someone and looking, in the, looking them in the face is risky business, isn't it? Looking someone in the face is risky business. Y'all, samurais were legally allowed to kill any peasant who looked them in the eye. Isn't that unreal? We tend to want to save face by hiding our face. Y'all have heard that phrase before, save face. Where do you think that comes from? This picture of shame and honor. We want to hide our face. Friends, I've asked you, how do you encounter the face of God? Now ask your soul, how do I encounter the face of those around me? How do I encounter the faces of those around me? And no matter how you answer that question, I want to assure you that with unashamed courage, you can lift your eyes to the face of Jesus in repentance and faith, and you will find His eyes looking for you already. You may have never looked up towards Him. But when you do, you will find his eyes because he's already been looking for you. He's had his eyes set on you for thousands and thousands of years. 
And in his eyes, you will find grace and peace. And that changes the way you encounter faces on this earth. 1 Corinthians 13, which for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. But first, a warning. This is only good news for unteachable, discouraged people who struggle with shame. It's only good news for those people. However ridiculous it was, and I know it was ridiculous, I spent a good part of my life thinking I was kind of this steely-eyed maverick from Top Gun type guy. Turns out I was more like Icarus flying too close to the sun, um, falling to the earth rather than flying in a fighter jet. But I had to learn who I really was and who really sustained me. If that is you, if you view yourself as top of the game, taking the world by the horns, then good for you. But I'll have to warn you that you may have received your reward here already on this earth. If I think I'm pretty good at life, if I walk around like Maverick, then I don't need and maybe I won't even want a suffering servant savior. Do you see it? That's who I think I am. Why would I want a suffering servant savior? I have no need for him. But for the rest of us, okay? For the rest of us, this is good news. It's good news that Jesus had unashamed courage because so often I do not. The gospel is not what Jesus empowers me to be and do. The gospel is who Jesus is and what he did. And today we consider just one aspect of that. He turns towards unteachable, discouraged, ashamed people like you and me and says, turn to me. He sets his face towards Jerusalem. May we turn and set our faces on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Thank you that you have set your face on us. I pray, Lord, that it would change us from the inside out that we would know we are loved. Thank you for these dear saints who have gathered to worship. I pray that you would bless them as we sing this last song. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. And it's in your precious name I pray. Amen.